But chapter 14 is incredibly rich. Chapter 15 will continue as we learn a little bit this morning and next week as we complete what it means to be bearing fruit. So our focus this morning is on John 15 verses 1 through 8. We're continuing through this farewell discourse, but now we have a bit of a change of setting. As you remember in John John chapter 14, the last verse we looked at, Jesus said, let us go from this room. And so now they are making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is going to pray, the disciples are going to sleep, and the religious leaders are going to come in just a few short hours and arrest him. So while in the upper room, Jesus conveyed several important points which he will continue to develop as we look at John 15 and then as we look at 16 and the great high priestly prayer in 17. But just a few of the things that Jesus began to drill deep into the hearts of his disciples as he not only prepared them for his departure, but he also prepared them for the apostolic ministry that they have been called to. He spoke with them about how they are to relate to one another, that they are to love one another as he has loved them. And what an incredible change of instruction that is for the typical Jew. We don't love as we deem others are worthy. We don't love in a way that others have loved us. We are to love as Christ has loved us completely, perfectly, unconditionally, and sacrificially. They are to replicate this example of divine love with one another just as they had experienced with them. Secondly, Jesus conveyed the point that to know Him was to know the Father. If you have seen Him, then you have seen the Father. Since He and the Father are one, all that Jesus has said and all that Jesus has done during His time on earth reflect the heart and the nature of the Father. There is no distinction, there is no division, there is no difference between what the Father has said and what Jesus has repeated. And so he is drilling this down into their hearts. So since they don't have to wonder what the Father is like, because they have been in His presence through the ministry of Jesus Christ, they don't have to guess. They don't have to speculate. They know because they have seen Jesus and they have come to know Him in a personal way. Thirdly, they are going to do greater works than Jesus did. Not greater in power, but greater in extent. If you remember, Jesus' ministry was confined to the borders of Palestine, but Jesus' disciples, these very apostles, would go into the remotest parts of the earth and share the gospel message. Fourthly, they will prove their love for Jesus and authenticate their profession of faith by obeying His commands. This is very, very important, and this continues to get repeated because Jesus wants them to know that not only in their own lives, but in the lives that they would lead to Christ, that they would shepherd and disciple, the proof is in the pudding. If you love Jesus, then you obey Him. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a lifestyle that reflects Jesus' commitment to the Father as you and I strive to live out our faith in the risen Jesus Christ. Fifthly, Jesus' departure will result in the Father sending to us the Holy Spirit. 
The Holy Spirit is going to be their helper, just as He is our helper. He will be with them and with us forever. He will teach them all things. He will bring back to their memory everything that Jesus has said during His earthly ministry. On top of that, the Holy Spirit is going to empower them to love Him and the way that He deserves, to love one another with the divine love with which they have been loved, He is going to empower them to do the greater things that Jesus has introduced as they go out and and carry out the apostolic ministry that they have been called to. So in this section of the discourse, Jesus will emphasize the importance of what a lifestyle of obedience looks like in the life of true believers. It is probable that while they have left the city of Jerusalem and are on their way traveling to Gethsemane, as they have left the city proper, they are out amongst the fields, and they are more than likely encountering what was very common in the area, and that would be vineyards. Vineyards would have dotted the landscape, much like tracts of farmland as you travel and drive through the Midwest. So Jesus probably is using this very familiar visible image of these vineyards to continue his teaching. And I would guess that as the disciples in the years that pass saw the vineyards would be reminded of what Jesus had instructed them in this time as they traveled to Gethsemane. So let's look at John 15, verses 1 through 8. We're going to divide this big passage that goes all the way through 16 into two different sections. So today we'll look at verses 1 through 8. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So what Jesus has begun as an introduction around the setting of the Lord's Supper and continued after the meal, he continues here now as they are making their way to Gethsemane. So in our passage, we're going to look at number one in our outline, the characters. The individuals that are introduced to us as a way of this teaching point begins, number one, Jesus is the vine. He says in verse 1a, I am the true vine. This is the last of the seven ego am I, or the great I am statements that Jesus makes about himself that are recorded in the Gospel of John. Each of these statements is a method of affirming the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus declares himself to be the true vine, which communicates to them and to us that he is not a false vine, he is not a counterfeit vine. 
Now what is unfamiliar to us is the familiarity of the image of a vine within the life of a Jew as recorded and taught through the Old Testament. It is used to describe God's act of establishing the nation of Israel as His own people. We read in Psalm 80 verse 8, You removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it. The image is incredibly clear, is that God Himself has taken this vine, representing the nation of Israel, out of bondage in Egypt, and He Himself has planted it, and they are now going to become His people. The nation of Israel was a vine that was to reflect the nature and the character of the Father. Just as you and I are ambassadors of Jesus Christ, just as you and I are witnesses of Christ everywhere we go, the nation of Israel was designed to be a representation of the Father to the lost world around them. As the vine that God planted in the nation of Israel, they were to be the channel or the conduit through which God's covenant blessings with them would flow into the world. The Jews never really got the idea that they were not to be a people who hoarded God for themselves. They were to share the truth and the reality about this covenant God so that others would say, boy, that sounds like a pretty good deal. I want to be a part of that too. They never really grasped that reality in the, in the life of their nation. And Israel proved to be fruitless and an un faithful vine. We read this through the prophet Jeremiah in 2.21. God speaking through Jeremiah says, Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. How then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? This is God's indictment on the nation of Israel as the ones who possessed the truth about this covenant God and what they did and did not do with that truth as a nation. They turned into degenerates of a foreign vine. What the Father said through Jeremiah never really changed. And so when Jesus, Jesus shows up to begin His earthly ministry, He finds a culture within the Jewish religion to be much like it was in the days of Jeremiah, They were fruitless and they were unfaithful. This is why Jesus had such harsh words for the religious leaders and the nation of Israel as a whole. They said they longed to see God, and yet when God showed up in the person of the Son, they completely missed that God was in their midst. They rejected Him, they ridiculed Him, and they sought at every opportunity to discredit Him. And all of this culminates in what's going to take place in just a few short hours, Jesus on the cross, unjustly dying under the guise of false allegations. The nation of Israel did not recognize Him. And in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells the story, the parable of the landowner. And in this parable, Jesus said that there was a landowner and he planted a vineyard and he rented the vineyard out to vine growers. And so at harvest time, 
the owner would send his servants to collect the crop from these vine growers. But when the servants showed up, the vine growers killed the messengers. Excuse me, they killed the servants. And so the owner sends a second group to collect the crop. And when they show up, the vine growers kill those servants as well. And so the third time, the owner sends his son. And Jesus says, he does this thinking that they would respect the son. But instead, they killed the son just as they had the messengers that the owner had sent. Well, the indictment is incredibly clear. The servants that the owner sent were the prophets that God sent to the nation of Israel to correct them, to direct them, to lead them into righteous living. And what did Israel do with all of their prophets? They killed them. What is it that the religious leaders seek to do with the son that the owner has sent Well, they're going to kill him. And so this is why Jesus tells the parable of the landowner and uses the imagery of a vineyard because not only were they very familiar with that, but it was a direct analogy to what was taking place in Jesus' very life. Well, the nation of Israel hadn't changed. They were still a fruitless, unfaithful vine. For Jesus to portray himself as the true vine is not a coincidence. He uses the imagery to convey to his disciples his true identity and how they are to relate to him. Second character we see in this is the father who is the gardener. Verse 1b, And my father is the vine dresser. So the word vine dresser is a word that we would understand to mean gardener, the one that tends to the vineyard that is planted. In this I am statement, Jesus says something that he has not said before. He includes the Father in the I am statement. The other places he did not do that. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Here he says, I am the vine and my Father is the vine dresser. This reinforces his teaching of the inseparable union that exists within his relationship and the Father. They are two of the same, the same in in essence, the same in nature, although they are communicated to us as two distinct persons. Now the fathers care for the vine and the branches. This is what his role is as the vine dresser. So the gardener is the one who has planted the vine, He's the one who nourishes the vine. He feeds it and he watches over the vine. And his two primary responsibilities are communicated to us. Letter A, he purges. Verse 2a, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the gardener, takes away. Now we'll talk more about the pruning, or the purging rather, a little bit later. Letter B in our outline is he prunes. So as the vine dresser, the father is the one who purges and the father is the one who prunes. Verse 2b, in every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So pruning is removing anything that would take away from fruit production. On a grapevine, in order to maximize fruit production, you had 
to prune it. So here's an example of what an unpruned vineyard, an unpruned grapevine would look like as Jesus was encountering this with his disciples. You can see all those branches. Well, if all those branches are still there, when it comes time for the crop to grow, it will greatly inhibit the production of the vineyard. Bruce Wilkinson is an author who tells a story about buying a home in California. And the property was divided by a lush vine. And when he moved in, the vine was green with branches and leaves. And they were so excited about the prospects of having their own grapevine in their property. And so after they bought the house, they went home and they packed up and they moved. And when they came back, they saw that the other tenant, the co-owner of the vineyard, had pruned it. So if you imagine this picture, full of lush green leaves, he shows up and he sees that. What did you do? What did you do to the grapevine? You killed it. And the guy says, no, you don't understand. If you want any grapes, you got to prune it. And so this is what a grapevine is going to look like when it's pruned in preparation for the production of grapes. So the vine dresser is going to remove everything from the vine that is going to inhibit the production of fruit. So on a believer, pruning is removing anything that saps our spiritual energy and limits the production of fruit in our lives, most particularly righteousness, our sanctification. Whatever is going to interfere with our sanctification, the Father is going to prune that from our lives. Our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions, it is the Father's desire to remove from us sin and worldly priorities or worldly ideals or worldly practices so that our lives can produce a maximum amount of fruit. So how does he prune us? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 3, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Now this verse speaks directly of the salvation that the disciples already knew and had experienced, although it was very young and infantile since the outpouring of the Holy Spirit had not taken place yet. But the method by which our pruning comes is the same word by which our salvation comes, and that is through His Word. If you remember when they were in the upper room and Jesus bent down to wash the feet of the disciples, Peter protested and said, Lord, if you're going to wash my feet, you might as well wash my hands and my head as well. Go ahead and give me a whole bath. And Jesus said, you don't need a whole bath. You're already clean. And so this is the same idea here that is communicated to the disciples by Jesus is that they are already clean, meaning they have a salvation relationship with Him, but the Lord is going to continue to prune Through his word. Pruning is generally the result of our obedient response to God's word. So, this isn't in your outline, but number one, we're either going to learn by the light of illumination or we're going to learn by a different method. I remember when I was. Uh, had preschoolers in the home, and the Saturday morning ritual was mom would sleep in late, and I would make pancakes for the kids. And the kids looked forward to it. Wake you up at 6.30 in the morning. 
on a Saturday. Pancakes, Daddy. We want pancakes. So go down and make pancakes. And we did this week after week after week. And I, my middle son was about two, two and a half. And I was going to take the hot pan and turn around and put it in the sink, which was literally just a step behind me. And I told my son, do not touch that. It is hot. It will burn you. Don't touch it. It's hot. Don't touch it. Right? That's illumination. Well, I turned around, and I came back, and as I was turning back, there his hand went right on top of the eye, and holy cow, did he not scream? The light of illumination. So you and I are generally going to be pruned through obedient responses to the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's Word is going to reveal to us who He is, what He wants, how we are to live, It corrects us, it reproves us, it teaches us, and it trains us so that you and I can learn how to live according to God's plans and purposes. This is the design of God's Word in our life. It gives us truth, and we are pruned by that truth, and you and I, as the responsible, submissive children of God, are to be motivated and moved by the truth of God's Word. When He illuminates truth to us, we respond. Secondly, not, excuse me, secondly, this is in your outline, He prunes us with hardship. If we reject the pruning that comes through the illumination of God's Word, then God will prune us through difficulties, trials, suffering, and pain. Now, when my little boy slapped his hand down on that hot stove eye, guess what? He learned a lesson. I'm not doing that again. That hurt. And I don't want to get burnt like that again. And so you and I have the opportunity to either learn through the illumination of God's Word, what He reveals to us in His Word, Or we learn through hardship because we say, I don't think so. I don't think I want to give that up. I don't think I want to sacrifice that. Now, let's make a distinction here. There is a general sense of suffering that exists in our world because you and I live under the curse of the fall. I'll give you an example. I had a friend in a former church that I was on staff at. And he had grown so much in his walk with the Lord. He just loved God. He wanted to serve God. He was on fire for God. But he made a lot of really, really bad decisions in his life that were the consequence of his rebellious, crazy actions. There is going to be suffering that you and I are going, that are, we're going to experience that have absolutely nothing to do with the decision that we have made. You don't get struck down with a physical hardship, most times, because of your sin. Remember the parable about the the young man who was born blind? 
well, who sinned, him or his parents, that he was born blind? The common misunderstanding of the Jewish nation. We get sick, we get cancer, we get problems in our bodies because we live under the curse of the fall. Those consequences are very, very different than the consequences that come because you and I say no to the illumination of God's word. Well, he will prune us with hardship when we refuse to listen to the revelation of his truth. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he, the Father, disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness." All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God will prune us by illuminating the truth of his word and our response, or God is going to prune us through hardship because we have chosen to think that we know better than God And after all, he's a big dog with very little bite because I've been doing this for a long, long time and nothing bad's happened yet, right? So God wants to remove these things from our lives that are limiting our fruitfulness and he'll do that through pruning. The purpose of discipline is to increase fruit production. Now the third character in our our teaching here is mankind. Mankind is represented by the branches. Now the branches are introduced in verse 2 with the responsibilities of the gardener, and this is developed further in the verses that follow. So as we examine the branches, we have to know there are only two types. There are fruitful or unfruitful branches. There are branches that are attached to the vine, and there are branches that are artificially attached to the vine. The gardener is the one who judges and makes this determination as it is his role to purge or to prune. So let's look at number A. Let's look at the true branches. Verse 2b, every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. God does not prune us because he's vindictive. He doesn't prune us because he's got a point to make. He prunes us because it is his desire that we bear more fruit and not be like the fruitless, unfaithful vine that he found in the life of the nation of Israel. So there are two distinguishing marks of the true branch. Number one, a true branch bears fruit. What does it mean to bear fruit? Well, for a grapevine... It's going to produce grapes. Lots of bright green leaves are not fruit. They're growth, but they're not fruit. So for a Christian, to bear fruit means to produce authentic Christianity. Now, we can falsely assume that fruit is evidenced only by outward success. Let me say that again. We can be confused into thinking that fruit 
is evidenced by outward success. Outward success can be an external form of religion, doing certain things or doing good things. It can be superficial righteousness, like having a basic sense of morality or going to church on a regular basis. It is believed to be evidenced by a large ministry or a popular ministry. The problem with looking at just the outward success alone is that non-believers and false believers can duplicate these external qualities. Do we really believe that everyone who talks about God or references Jesus or heaven is really a true Christian? Just because people refer to God or Jesus or heaven doesn't mean that they have been genuinely saved. For example, popular music is filled with references to spiritual things. The idea or usage of spiritual terminology litters the conversation of athletes and celebrities who very likely know absolutely nothing about authentic salvation. Have you ever heard an athlete say, well, I give the big man upstairs all the credit? Well, who exactly is the big man upstairs? What does he mean by that? How does he live that out through his life? And what about the many, many, many large churches that are filled with people who never hear the true gospel message? They hear a watered-down message about God that celebrates man's pursuit of worldly pleasures and this God who desires to provide it. Let me read for you something that is directly related to one of these megachurches and one of these very, very popular authors and pastors. There's, there's like seven of these major points. We're just going to look at the first three. First thing you need to do is you need to enlarge your vision. All right? Enlarge your vision. God wants to make our lives easier and provides His people with special advantages and preferential treatment. We need to learn to expect good things from God. So, for example, here we go. If you're in a crowded parking lot, we can pray, quote, Father, I thank you for leading and guiding me. Your favor will cause me to get a good spot. There's God. He's all about making sure you get the up-close spot in a very crowded parking lot. Enlarge your vision. Secondly, develop a healthy self-image. He says we are what we believe, so we need to think positive thoughts. Quote, God sees you as strong and courageous, as a man or woman of great honor and value. Well, there's some truth in that, right? He goes on to say that Sarah gave birth to Isaac, not because it was God's sovereign plan, but because Sarah believed it in her heart. So Sarah didn't give birth to Isaac because God had sovereignly ordained her to do that. She conceived Isaac as a barren woman because... She developed self-esteem. Thirdly, discover the power of your thoughts and words. And this is where it really goes off the tracks and down into a deep, deep, deep valley, never to be found again. Our thoughts and words have creative power. Quote, Our words become self-fulfilling prophecies. If you allow your thoughts to defeat you and then give birth to negative ideas through your words, your actions will follow suit. That's why we need to be extremely careful about what we think and especially careful about what we say. Your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, 
you give birth to it. God, I want to be a millionaire. Well, you've, you've enlarged your vision and you've developed your self-esteem and you're speaking these positive thoughts. So obviously, God's going to make you a millionaire, right? Well, this is consistent with what is being taught in many, many of these massive churches that dot the landscape of America and lead people astray. So let me ask you, is the content and the size of that kind of a church indicative of God's blessing or is it because it appeals to what man wants and doesn't have? This conversation can be very, very difficult because we don't want to create or or reinforce the idea that our salvation, our being a branch, is earned or deserved by what we do, but what we do, or better yet, who we are, is the byproduct of our salvation. So a true branch is one that is going to bear fruit. Well, what kind of fruit? When you talk about bearing fruit, what are you talking about? Well, letter A, we're talking about spiritual character. Our spiritual character is one that is continually being shaped and crafted by God. Now, let me ask you this question. If it was God's intent that His children would be the wealthiest in the world, wouldn't that stand to reason that pretty much all the Christians in the world would already be wealthy? Wouldn't it stand to reason if it was God's desire that we be happy and completely healthy, that no Christian would ever get sick, no Christian would ever endure difficulties in their life, no Christian would ever be diagnosed with cancer or die a premature death? Doesn't that kind of fit together? We see fruit is the development of spiritual character that is crafted by God Through His Word. Spiritual character is birthed in us as we give ourselves to the work of the Holy Spirit and align ourselves with what God desires to do in us and through us. Matthew 3, chapter 8, the ministry of John the Baptist said, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I've actually heard people say, Well, you know, once you become a Christian... You don't need to repent anymore. Well, why is that? Because you're saved. So does that mean that there is no sin in my life? There's no imperfection in my life? There's no need for growth or change in my life if I don't need to repent? So John the Baptist says, bear fruit in keeping with or continuing in repentance. We can see a description of what a repentant life is to look like as we consider the work of transformation that takes place in the lives of sinful, selfish men. Let's look in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 to 23. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, the lost, the false branches, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things 
There is no law. There is this incredible contrast between the fruit that is born in the lives of false branches and the fruit that is to be born in the lives of true branches. It is centered around spiritual character. Now, while we have been spiritually cleaned up and possess these virtues imperfectly, we are to possess them to a greater degree through the pruning work of the Father as we recognize that I am but a branch and you are the vine dresser, the source of my spiritual life. Well, not only is fruit identified in spiritual character, letter B, fruit is characterized by spiritual conduct. Our conduct, the lives that we live, the priorities that we possess, what we put our lives to in terms of plans and purposes are to flow out of the spiritual character the Holy Spirit is creating in us so that our lives more closely reflect God's plans and purposes for us. Not my will, your will. Not what I want, what you want. Not where I want to go, but where you want to go. I can't tell you the number of times I've encountered men who were in their 40s and 50s who were entering into seminary or graduating from seminary, and many of them told a very similar story. Well, you know, God called me to preach as a teenager, and I said, no, I wasn't going to do that. I didn't want to live that life. I didn't want to be confined by the church. I didn't want to have all the stuff that went along with being a pastor. So I said, no. Well, I can tell you the conduct of a life like that is going to flow from the spiritual character the Holy Spirit is developing. And when God says, I want you to go, and you say, no, I'm not going to go, what kind of spiritual character do we possess? You see, every time we say no to whatever God reveals to us in His Word, it indicates something about our spiritual character. A character of love and joy and peace and how we relate to God, how we relate to others, how we carry out the plans God has for us. Philippians 1, verses 9-11, through And this I pray, Paul praying, that your love may abound still more and more in, a real, in real knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and the praise of God. You know, when I read those verses in my Bible, there isn't a parenthesis, there isn't an asterisk that says, this applies only to the church at Philippi, this doesn't relate to you today. The prayer that Paul prayed to the church at Philippi is the exact same prayer that you and I are to be praying about ourselves is that we may abound in our love and all knowledge and discernment so that we may approve the things that are excellent and that we may be blameless until the day of Christ. That's the fruit of character that manifests and fleshes itself out in the lives that you and I live as the fruit of conduct. Now, the fruit of conduct goes way beyond just those things. It is our cooperation with the plans of God. It is our sharing our faith with other people. It is our willingness to give back to God, to build and invest in the kingdom work. Many, many other things that we could 
note as a part of this spiritual conduct. But there's a second distinguishing mark of a true branch, and that is this. Number two, remains in Christ. Not only does a true branch bear fruit, but a true branch remains in Christ. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. Now, don't understand this as a conditional If you abide in me, then I will abide in you. It's more of a statement. Because you abide in me, I will abide in you. Because I abide in you, you are going to abide in me. That word abide simply means remaining in. Stay in Christ's love. Keep it and hold fast to it. Treasure it. Never wander away from it. It is staying closely connected to the vine. It means we don't walk away from God for a few months or walk with God for a few months and then stray away and live the life of a rebellious sinner and then come back and confess and repent and then stray away again and then confess and repent. You've heard of people like that, right? It doesn't mean that we live our lives with Christ at arm's length. To remain in Christ means that I cling fast to the gift of grace at the cross, that which has changed my life for all of eternity, I am going to remain in that love. So to remain in Christ's love means at least five things. Very, very quickly. Letter A. These are things to ponder later. Letter A. Live with an openness to God. Don't believe for a moment that you've got all you ever need from God. Don't believe for a moment that there isn't more growth that needs to take place. Be quick to confess. Be quick to repent. Be quick to forgive. Continually ask God to prune you so you can bear fruit. Letter B, true branch doesn't live in continual sin. To remain in Christ's love means that we don't repeat that same sin over and over and over and over and over in such a way that it absolutely dominates our lives. There are strongholds. There are areas of life that are incredibly difficult to find victory in, but victory has been provided. There's not a deficiency on God's part. We must learn how to appropriate the power that God has given to us through the Holy Spirit by breaking free from the bondage of sin. Letter C, we remain in Christ's love by fellowshipping with God. It means that we spend time in His Word. It means that we live our lives in a, with a consciousness of God's presence. It means that when you're in the car and you're at light, God, I'm so thankful of Your love for me. I'm praying that You'll work this thing out in my life. I'm praying that You'll give me a capacity to love and forgive. It's living moment by moment with an awareness of God's presence. Letter D. It means to actively surrender to God's will. Unlike Jonah, who turned 180 degrees and went in the opposite direction, we bow our knees before the Lord and we say, Yes, Lord, not as I desire, but as you desire. Letter E, we fellowship and experience some kind of unity with believers. It doesn't mean that every Christian is our best friend, but it means that we don't have a continual battle with those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I believe the vast majority of conflict that exists within the family of God is a result of a lack of confession and repentance and the extension and receipt of forgiveness. If we will come to one another defenseless, I have wronged you. It hurts me in my spirit that I have wronged you. Would you forgive me? 
The Christian is to say yes. Not if you will, well, it really bothered me and I can't believe you did. But we fellowship and have unity with other believers. The degree to which we do or don't do these, these, these things, these five things, will indicate how well we are remaining or abiding in His love. When we aren't seeing these things in our lives, it means that we are not remaining in His love and we need to confess and repent. So bearing fruit is dependent upon our abiding in Him. We cannot and we will not live the victorious Christian life in our own strength, by our own power. We cannot do it. Verses 4 and 5. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in Me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in Me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. You know, sometimes we have these beautiful flowers that grow on our property. You see them, you admire them, you smell them. And so as a way to bring that beauty into your home, you cut it and you'll stick it in a vase. And within three or four days, what happens? It shrivels up, it's lost its color, it's lost that fragrance, it's lost that appeal. And that's exactly what it looks like for us when we are not connected to the vine. And that's what it looks like to those who are artificially connected to the vine. Our ability to produce fruit is based upon our connectedness to the vine. If we don't stay connected, we won't produce fruit. Some branches are going to produce more fruit than others. 20% of their capacity... 50% of their capacity, 70% of the capacity. Whatever the amount of fruit that is being produced in our lives, it should be our prayer that just like Jesus said, the Father would prune us so that we can bear much fruit. Every branch, every true branch produces fruit, and any branch that does not bear fruit is not truly connected to the vine, and it will be removed. That brings us to letter B, the false branches. This begins in verse 2b and then is restated in verse 6. So Jesus says, every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And then in verse 6 he says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. False branches will be removed. Now these false branches are not Christians that have lost their salvation. These are people who have artificially attached themselves to the person of Jesus Christ. You know, some trees will grow, and they'll have this great big trunk, and you'll have these little things that sprout up. You know what those are called? They're called suckers. They're not really a true product of the tree, They will not grow up and produce any fruit. And so as the owner of that tree, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to go out there and cut those suckers because they have artificially attached themselves to this thing that is growing. So this is not Christians losing their salvation. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I certainly will not cast out. 
Right? We cannot lose our salvation. Now, neither are there fruitless Christians. There can't be such a thing. You can't be a Christian and not produce fruit. You may not produce a lot of fruit, but you have to produce some fruit. Otherwise, you're not a true branch. Now, in the in me phrase that we see in verse 2 is not speaking of the believer's union in Christ as Paul speaks in the, in the book of Ephesians. What Jesus is saying here is that these are individuals who simply profess a connection to me but are not true followers of me. Remember back in John 6 when Jesus fed the 5,000 and he said, unless you eat of my, my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part in me. And they said, well, that's a hard teaching. Who can follow that? And so many, many people left them. They had artificially attached themselves to the life of Christ because they wanted something from him. They wanted food. They wanted provision. They wanted certainty and stability. So this understanding of Jesus not saying in me, in union with me, is clarified by what he says in verse 6. Those who are truly in Christ will remain in His love. They will abide in the love of Christ. That means something far different from what the false, falsely professing Christian means in his life. So Jesus describes throughout His ministry these false believers as tares among the wheat, as the sheep and the goat, as the faithful and the unfaithful servants. The larger a church is, the greater the likelihood is that there are tares mixed in with the wheat. It's inevitable. People are going to artificially attach themselves to Christ because there's something appealing to that, but it doesn't mean that they are remaining in His love. It does not mean that they have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and they are bearing fruit in their lives. Now, we're not to make that judgment ourselves. That is, the Father's judgment to make. But I can tell you in my life, I've seen these people who have uh, come to church on a regular basis and I go, honey, that's kind of curious how this person comes and how they live and what they say and what they do. It seems to be completely inconsistent. But I can't judge that. That's the Father's business to judge. We know people like that. We know people who to us seemingly have a very artificial connection to Christ. And it may be, but that is not our decision to make. These are people who imagine they are on their way to heaven, but they have been completely deceived. I think about these people who sit in these churches and they're being told that they need to enlarge their vision and they need to develop their self-esteem and they need to have creative power with their words. And then they stand before the Lord Jesus and He says to them, Sorry, man. I don't know who you are. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But who? He who does the will of my Father, who is, who is in heaven, will enter. You could almost say the one that remains in my love is the one who's going to go into heaven because there's a direct connection between loving Christ and obeying Christ with what he's saying here. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, listen to this, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform any miracles? Now we can look at that as an outward, outward observance of spirituality and say, wow, look at the great things going on in their lives. Yet Jesus says in verse 23, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Know, this is all, it's not all caps. It's, 
It's all caps in yours. This is a quotation from the Old Testament. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There are many, many people who are going to stand before the Lord and He's going to say, I never knew you. You were falsely connected to the vine, not a true branch. Now, back it up to John chapter 13, and we are confronted with the perfect example of how this is true. Judas Iscariot. Judas walked with Jesus the entire time of his ministry. He was given the responsibility of being the treasurer. And when Jesus announced that one of them was going to betray him, they all looked in disbelief. Who's going to do such a thing? We can't... We, who? Who's going to do this? They didn't go, it's Judas. We knew it all along. We knew he was the guy. They had no clue. True believers are going to bear fruit. False believers are going to be cut off and they're going to be burned. They will spend an eternal destiny separated from God. Well, how do you know if you are a true branch or a false branch? The fruit is going to tell. Now I'm going to pause here because of the sake of time and we'll continue with our Roman numeral 2 next week. But I want you to think about this. What kind of fruit is being produced in our lives? Are we seeing a movement towards Christ? Are we seeing a growth and an increase in righteousness and holiness? Are we quick to confess and repent and extend forgiveness? These things don't earn us our salvation. They're evidence of our salvation. It isn't enough to pray a prayer or to shed a tear at one point way, way back in your life and then just kind of do your own thing. To remain in Christ's love, to abide in Him, means that our spiritual life is drawn directly from the vine, from nothing else. These people who have adopted other sacred books of writing, who have adopted into their lives prophets who speak and reveal truth to them that is inconsistent with or contradictory to the Bible. It's such a sad thing. It's such a sad reality that there are so many people who wouldn't know the truth if it stood right before them, just like it happened in the time of Jesus' ministry as He taught His own people and they never recognized who He was. We must not be deceived by self-righteousness. We must not be content with what appears to be just an outward experience or an outward evidence of producing fruit, but spiritual character that is borne out in spiritual conduct that is driven by and dictated by the plans and purposes of God as He reveals to you through His Word. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the great challenges is to our walk with you. And Father, we, um, we know that none of us live up to this perfectly. And we also know, Father, that this process will never, ever end. And I pray that you would teach us to be okay with that 
as we lean on you and as we trust in you to do the work that you desire to do in us and through us. And I pray that you would bring to our mind that area or those areas of our life where we are resistant, indifferent, reluctant to obey you, to follow you, to surrender to you. I pray that we would desire the production of spiritual fruit in our lives more than we desire anything else. God, we thank you that you've given to us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to empower us to that end. I pray that you would help us to hear his voice, that we would follow his lead, and that we would walk in the blessing that is ours as we live our lives in the shadow of the Almighty. God, we pray that you would accomplish your will in each and every heart and every life today. We pray in Jesus' name.